the hardest part is getting people to open their minds and to imagine things that don't exist yet. Because, you know, my focus is on things that are in the future that don't exist yet in a world that doesn't exist yet. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode nine of Improv is No Joke podcast. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, and thank you very much for tuning in today. I greatly appreciate it. Today's guest is John Barlow, who is a principal engineer at Honda R&D Americas Inc. I met John on a flight from Atlanta to Columbus. Now, I violated Call Rx 20 minutes before you land rule, which is only strike up a conversation with the person next to you the last 20 minutes of the flight. For those of you who fly a lot, the reasoning is very clear. John and I talked the entire flight about kids, family, bourbon, and work. During this time, I learned that John is the accidental engineer because he was far from your stereotypical engineer, as you will hear in our interview. He has a lot of great tips on managing people, no matter what profession you are in. Before we get to the interview with John, I'd like to share with you a review that I received on iTunes. This is from Lisa Anderson, and she writes, Yes, and. It's amazing how these two small words can make such a huge impact on communications and relationships in every aspect of your life. Family, friends, business, and the list goes on. Two small words that give you such a different and very positive outlook on so many aspects of your life and give you almost superpowers in building relationships. It will be well worth your time to listen to Peter's podcast and definitely worth your time to read his book. Thank you, Lisa, for that wonderful review. The next time I'm in Tulsa, chicken fried steak is on me. If you've been listening to this podcast, I would appreciate if you would take a moment and write a review. It'll help get the podcast greater visibility in the iTunes community. Also, if you're not signed up for the ESN Challenge, please go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and scroll down to the ESN Challenge Call to Action Click to register to begin building an effective habit of yes and and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag yes and challenge or on the Accidental Accountants Facebook page. If you're unsure what the yes and challenge is all about, please go back and listen to episode zero. This is where I discuss the yes and challenge in more detail. This week, I'd like to share with you an article titled Three Rules of Improv Comedy Can Help You Make Better Conversations at Work and on Dates by Jackie Katzman of Business Insider. Jackie is interviewing Dan O'Connor, who is a professional improv actor who has founded multiple theaters in Los Angeles and San Francisco. One of the passages is about deciding that mistakes are gifts, and Dan states, watching somebody panic when their clicker suddenly stops working during a PowerPoint presentation can be uncomfortable. The discomfort comes from the emotional response of feeling bad for the person, a type of secondhand embarrassment. Dan says the person is better off embracing the mistake of the dysfunctional clicker. 
show that you can deal with the mistakes in a happy and positive way and fail good-naturedly. I'll supply a link to this article in the show notes. And with that said, let's get to the interview with John Barlow. John, welcome to my podcast. It's great to see you. And first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to um, spend with me, having a great conversation, similar to the conversation we had on that Delta flight coming back from Atlanta. I greatly appreciate you taking the time and welcome to the show. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, John. Let's start off by telling the audience a little bit about who you are, about your background, a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania. I like to say distant suburbs of Philadelphia to try to distance myself from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, I grew up there, um, spent a lot of time going to the beach uh, for vacations, weekend trips. I absolutely love the beach, love sitting there listening to the ocean. It's peaceful, calming. Hopefully my retirement location someday as a beach. Went to Penn State for four years, got an engineering degree. Honestly, at the time when I was coming out of school, the job market was pretty bad. So I had actually enrolled to go into grad school um, to get a master's in acoustic engineering. But lo and behold, during finals week, I got a phone interview from Honda. Then they invited me out for a second interview and gave me an offer. And I've been there for almost 22 years. So now I live here in central Ohio, um, got married, have two boys, now divorced. My boys are 9 and 13, both very active in sports. Um, and I like to volunteer um, to work with them. I like teaching kids. I like teaching people in general. Um, I find it rewarding. And especially with the kids, you know, you get to teach them about sports and then also about life and being good people. And some of those kids don't have role models. They don't have somebody, you know, with a lot of divorces today, they don't have a father figure sometimes that to teach them the right way to do things and how to be men, you know, so you get to help mold them into young men. So then, of course, I work at, as an engineer at Honda. And uh, I know you and I talked about this, but of course, there's the stereotype of the engineer. Um, and I don't exactly fit that mold to a T. <laughs> um, so most engineers think with one side of their brain, uh, they're very analytical, uh, all about numbers, but I actually use the other side of my brain for a lot of things too. I play drums in a band. Um, I also do graphic design. I design t-shirts and logos. I like to do a lot of different creative things. The uh, creative side of me makes me a little bit of a different type of engineer at, at Honda I usually see things from a much different perspective than other people. And when we get engaged in conversation, arguments, disagreements, whatever, oftentimes I bring a different perspective uh, to things. And, you know, the interesting thing is one of my primary jobs is to actually understand how people use the interiors of vehicles and then try to, to make requirements such that we can accommodate the way people want to be able to use the vehicle. And sometimes they don't even know, they can't answer you how they want to use the car. But if you observe their tendencies um, and study the way that people use cars, you can learn a lot of things. So, you know, I, and trying to understand the different ways that people use cars, you know, they're vastly different. So in that kind of a position, you have to have a really wide viewpoint 
to be able to understand how all people use cars, not just your specific way. So that's one of the things that I try to impart into a lot of people that I work with, uh, whether they be uh, direct reports that are in my department or people that I come across in meetings. I try to impart with them that you have to have a wider viewpoint, basically be empathetic to other people and how they do things and use things and want to use things. And I think my creative mind is what allows me to have a much wider perspective than most people. And I'm considered within our company as one of the very out-of-the-box thinkers, very creative-minded and open-minded. And if I remember correctly on the uh, plane, when you were telling me about your background, and I, I forgot, what's your title at Honda? Uh, I'm My title is a principal engineer, but I'm actually an interior technical strategy leader among many other titles. <laughs> so I work on creating uh, strategies for uh, future interiors for our vehicles. I remember you, we were having this conversation and you were talking about your being a drummer and this creative side where I called you the accidental engineer and, and I'm the kind of the accidental accountant is what I branded myself being because I like to use both sides of my brain. Probably my right side stronger than my left side. So at times I feel like a right brain person living in the left brain world. But there was one, of, you said something about you almost became an acoustic engineer. When I was signed up, I was accepted into Penn State for grad school to be go into the acoustical program uh, for engineering. And at that time, the reason why I wanted to do it is I played drums. So I wanted to learn the acoustics and basically be able to design recording studios and things like that. So if you ever go and look at recording studios or even think about movie theaters or anything like that, there's a lot that goes into the design of them. Um, everything from the, sh the angles of the, all the walls, the shapes that are inside, as well as the acoustic treatments that go into it. Generally, those spaces are very well designed so that they fit the perfect acoustic needs of whatever the space is designed for. So, for example, if you're in if you're in a hall where maybe somebody's speaking and you want everybody to hear the speaking at the same volume level, you can design the ceiling to reflect the sound so that it goes and is dispersed to everybody equally. In a recording studio, generally, you want to isolate the sound. So you make it such that um, the sound gets bounced around. It's It can be evenly dispersed, but you also want to absorb certain frequencies as well. So, you know, I wanted to go and learn about all that stuff. And, you know, at the time, my dream was that I was going to go start designing recording studios or something like that. And I thought that would be fun. Sounds fun. Or something in the in the music industry in general. That was my big passion at the time. Still is, but you know, I also like cars. So <laughs> <laughs> you drive a Honda. Yeah, I do. So listen to what you do at work and, and the people that you're interacting with at work, and you having such a really strong creative side. What's the biggest challenge that you have? And, and dealing with the people that report to you, your peers or whatever, being a creative type in very much a left brain world. The hardest part is getting people to open their minds and to imagine things that don't exist yet. Because, you know, my focus is on things that are in the future that don't exist yet in a world that doesn't exist yet. And 
you know, I go to I go to shows like CES for the consumer electronics, and I see the trends, and I see what things are happening, and I essentially future cast those things, and almost in my mind predict what I expect the future is going to be like, and then I, I take that information and I try to build it into something that. I think our future customers will want, but getting somebody who doesn't think that way to understand the need and why we need to do things differently so that we can be prepared for that in the future is really hard because most people really look at today and at most, maybe they're looking one year into the future, which is fairly predictive, right? You can guess in one year where things are going to be. 15 years from now, nobody can really predict. I mean, if 15 years ago, if you would have guessed that tablets and and cell phones would be the way they are today, nobody would have predicted that. So, you know, somebody 15 years ago probably did. Right. They knew something, but getting those people to think that far into the future is really hard. So what type of techniques do you use when you're trying to get someone to go into your mind and see what you're seeing when you know that they're having a hard time getting out of year one. I carry a big club. <laughs> carry a big club. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, sometimes you have to use different tactics depending on who the person is that you're talking to. But a lot of it is really trying to build a logical storyboard. And, you know, part of it is trying to show a trend. And exactly the situation that I explained is one of the things that we do to people is, okay, think 15 years ago and what you knew then, and you tell them what the year is and think about what technologies, and you show this to them on a PowerPoint slide. These are the technologies that existed 15 years ago. Now look at today. Would you have guessed then that this would be what today is like? Now imagine 15 years from now, I'm telling you that these things are what is going to be happening. Can you imagine that based on what happened from 15 years ago to today? You know, and when you start to paint things in that kind of a light, people understand how quickly things are changing. And then they start to open up their minds a little bit more and realize that, you know, some of the things that sound unrealistic actually probably are pretty realistic and probably will happen. Uh we have a lot more than in common than I realize because I have the same conversation in, in my profession. Uh, there's a book that I don't know if you've read this. It's by uh, Jeff Colvin, uh, senior editor, managing editor at Fortune, came out with last year called Humans Are Underrated. And he talks about the technology and the technology changing. And he makes references to cognitive computing, a.k.a. Watson. Yep. I do a presentation called Leveraging Your Leadership Through Improvisation. So I take them back to 1995. In 1995, we were using a 10-key. We use Excel now. You know, in, in 1995, we had one computer on our desk with a back end, you know, about you know, 12 inches to a foot deep. Yeah. Most people these days have three or four screens. And I go, so where do you think we're going to be in 2025? And I, I try to make the argument that I truly believe the way technology is going, that Excel will be extinct by maybe 2020, uh, uh, maybe by 2020, if not sooner. It could be. It very well could be. You know, and it's interesting because most people don't think about these things. 
But you think about today's cell phone, and you have more computing power in a cell phone than the computers I had when I was coming out of college. Right. So you're talking about 22 years, and all of a sudden, the computing power of something that small is greater than something, probably than computers that actually filled an entire room. That's pretty impressive. That is. And part of my argument is if we're going to, if we're going to have machines, the Watsons of the world that can do the computing for us, what roles do we need to start playing within the workforce? And if, if I don't have to be the number cruncher, I have to be more of a relationship builder, much more so. And I, I you're doing that already. Um, with the way you approach your job and approach your day in and day out, you're building relationships because you got to build some trust and support uh, and respect with your team that they don't think that you're off the reservation. So they've got buy-in and I'm, I'm sure that that always takes time, but you also have to be sitting down to think of what, what could be next. And, and the other thing that goes through my mind is I look at the universities full of engineering students, accounting students, Really, what are we teaching them today? By the time they graduate, will they even be using any of that? What should we be teaching them? Um, you know, for the engineers, I think there will always be something. Um, I don't know what that next future challenge is, but, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about this future technology, you know, part of it is actually trying to establish a relationship between human and machine. because the more of a relationship you can build there, there's more trust in the technology. And it seems like a lot of people strive for that, you know, especially as, as technology is starting to provide services for people. You don't want it to come across as it's a machine, right? Right. You want it to be more personal than that. So it, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, yeah, I don't know it. There will always be something there for those engineers, uh, all the students that go to school, but they'll have different challenges, I think. The, uh, in, in Colvin's book, he says, where we differ from machines is that we can communicate, we're creative, and we can collaborate. Those are our strengths. No matter what profession, what trade, whatever, that's where we excel where a machine is programmed. And they can only do what's in, within that programming. But then I, I look at, we're talking about changing technology. Last July, Phoenix, Arizona, McDonald's opened its first robotic McDonald's. Now, there are three people in the store to make sure that they're well-oiled, they're, they're not breaking down, they're not taking long smoke breaks or something like that. <laughs> but these highly repetitive jobs, he argues that... Um, will be replaced by the machine. So what can we do differently? And, and you also mentioned something about, about using your right side of the brain. You said you're more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he argues that that is going to be one of the key skill sets moving forward. And he really, he says that in general, this is where men lack from women because they empathize better than men do. Uh, and they will become the future overall leaders uh, of organizations and stuff as technology changes the ability to empathize. Or maybe he should write it in a different way. Those who have the ability to empathize 
we'll become better leaders uh, in, in the future than maybe in the past. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to have to grab a pen and write that book down because I want to read that. It sounds interesting. As much as I hate stereotyping, I would generally agree with him. I think in most cases, women are better at empathizing than men are, but it's not a, it's not a standard, of course. Right. I don't know if that will mean that women will be the leaders in the future because they can be more empathetic. I don't know. That's an interesting question. It is an interesting question. It's an interesting concept that he, he brought up. And uh, knowing John, if you pick up his book, Humans Are Underrated, um, you fly a lot from Columbus to Los Angeles. I figure within one trip of flying out, flying, black, flying back, you'll have that book pretty much knocked out. <laughs> Well, it sounds like an interesting read. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to pick that one up. It, it really it really is a, a really good read. I, I picked it up immediately. It was on the front page of Fortune's uh, magazine because there was a book that came out before that a few years ago called The Second Machine Age, which was written by a couple of uh, uh, MIT computer science PhDs. And I read the book, and this thing was pretty much over my head that I had to read it on the ladder and still it was a little bit over my head. But I was able to get the gist of it, and basically the gist of that book is along the lines of Colvin's book, but he brings it into perspective as of 2014, 2015, when these guys were probably back in 2010, 2011. Um, and, and I know there's another good book that, that you've read, because I sent it to you, and you, when I gave you a copy of the book, and you said that you were going to read it, and you became almost an instant fan because you started sending me emails and stuff after the fact saying you loved it and you were able to apply it. And can you share some of those experiences? Yeah. I, uh, the first time I read the book, I connected with it a lot and you know, it, it really impacted me because the first thing I'll say is I don't generally read books. I'm not a book reader. I, I actually hate reading, but the books that I do read are, generally books that are self-help or self-improvement or books that are of that nature. And when I read your book, I was able to really relate to a lot of the stories that you gave when you talked about the, you know, the principle of yes. And mm -hmm. it really resonated with me. And, you know, I love the people watch, especially at work, especially on trips. And, you know, just, Yesterday, I had a perfect situation where I got to observe <clears throat> a conversation between two coworkers in my department. And it literally was one person trying to force their agenda on the other person and they weren't listening. And it's exactly what you talked about in your book. You know, you taught the two things that stood out for me from your book. One was using the yes and instead of yes but principle. Um, and then the other one was listening to actually understand what somebody's saying instead of just listening to respond. And that was a perfect situation where he was listening just to wait until she stopped talking and then respond and literally almost like a, an animal pouncing on its prey. Um, and today I actually talked with him about it and I told him that his approach was wrong and I have actually given him a copy of your book to read and he hasn't read it yet. And I keep asking him to read it. Um, but he's a good friend of mine and I also mentor this guy uh, from a personal and a business relationship. 
And, you know, the, the striking thing for me is I've read other books and, you know, they, they say similar things to what your book says. What I loved about your book is it's very concise. The book's not very long and it gets to the point quickly. And it gave great examples of, you know, from your own personal life that I could relate to um, that emphasize the point. And, you know, it hit home with me and it made me rethink the way that I deal with people, um, especially in the, you know, the, the yes, but versus yes, and really, really stuck to me. And it, it was because of the pushing your own agenda. Right. And I've done it in the past and I've seen it happen in the past. And I was thinking about this actually before this conversation started. And I was thinking about today's today versus say 20 years ago and how busy people are. And I think because people are so busy with their lives these days, I think part of that forces the yes, but culture because people are so time sensitive. They just want to get to the point and they don't want to listen to what the other person has to say. So they pretty much shut their ears off and they wait until the person stops talking and then they just want to force their agenda and get to the end quickly. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't work because in a lot of cases it just ends up with an argument that goes longer than it probably would have if you would have just listened to what the other person was trying to say, understood, empathized a little bit with them, and then came to some final conclusion. And instead of being argumentative with them, basically acknowledging that you understand what they're saying and, and adding on to it. And, you know, that's a lot of what I got out of the book. Um, and, you know, I find myself at times getting back into the rut of falling back into the yes, but, and when I see myself doing that, I pick the book up and I will reread it and it, you know, some, something in my brain, it'll readjust my brain and then I'll get back into the yes and mode of things. And, you know, things are great. So it's tough to say that yes mode on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, uh, at work because you're surrounded by a lot of yes, but or no, because, um, and you know, as I, as I tell people, this is a very easy concept, but it's hard. It's hard to implement. It's hard to be consistent in that implementation. Uh, and the more I, I, I greatly appreciate the comment that when you find yourself getting the yes, but you, you pick up my book or you, or you gave my book to the, to your colleague, because um, that just blows me away. When I wrote this book, I never, you know, realized things like that would be happening. But it's it's a it's a real simple message that's hard to implement because once we get back into that rut, and how do we how do we maintain that focus? Because you know, as there, I think Aristotle quoted, um, "Excellence is not an act; it's a habit." But then I ask people, so how long does it take to, to have a habit? And everybody goes, 21 days is from what you hear out. And, and I go, well, that part's correct. It's 21 days to start a habit, but it's a lifetime to maintain it. Because we've all started diets. And how many of us have given up on diets or given up on a lot of stuff? But, you know, those New Year's resolutions that fall flat about, you know, maybe February 1st. Well, it's the same thing with, with the concept of ESN, the principles of improv. Uh, it's just 
working that muscle on a daily basis and, and trying to continually strengthen it, as well as fighting off the yes buts and the no causes. Well, you know, it's interesting. You talk about habits. You know, I'm sure it's not exclusive to where I work, and I think it's probably common for a lot of engineers, but a lot of our focus is actually finding problems and finding the fault in things, right? Right. And what happens is, at least what I've witnessed in myself is, you know, I get so caught up in that in work, I let that become a habit in my brain. So then I've, what I found in the past is I've looked for the fault or the weakness in everything. And I became super critical about things, whether it be personal life or work life. Yeah. And it's easy to fall into that trap. It's easy to allow that, that kind of mindset to, to impact every aspect of your life. And if you can take a step back and then look at things from a different perspective, and that's what your book did for me is it allowed me to look at things from a different perspective and take that step back and understand that the way that you approach other people, how it impacts them. So if you say yes, but all the time, it has an impact on the other person versus if you say yes and. You know, the yes and approach, it's not always about saying yes. There are times when no is appropriate, but as someone recently taught me, it's about allowing yourself to step in somebody else's reality, albeit for a moment, just to get a better understanding of where, where they're coming from. So you can have that constructive conversation and move it forward in a positive direction. And, and it may, like I said, it may come back to a note, which is fine, but at least you explored it instead of shutting it down. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I basically say when I explain it to people, I say the yes and approach because I don't often say yes and, mm -hmm. but it's the mindset that's more important. It's not actually the two words of yes and. Bingo. Um, you know, and, you know, the, I know I told you this in the, in the response to the questions, but I actually had myself a bracelet made and the bracelet says yes and on it. So every day when I find myself falling into the trap of the yes, but mindset, I have the bracelet in front of me every day. So it gives me a daily reminder that I need to change my mindset. I need to need to have a different viewpoint and I need to be empathetic to other people and understand their point of view and make sure that I'm supportive and not, uh, not combative, I guess you could say about things. And, and how have you seen this uh, with this change? How are people responding to you? Um, you know, in general, and I don't observe it just in myself, but I know other people that have a similar approach to things. People generally react more positively to it um, because they see that you're 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 listening to their thoughts and you're you, you really care about what they think about. But at the same time, you're trying to offer more information or a different option or a different solution. Um, and generally, they're more receptive to it. And then conversation becomes more productive that way as opposed to shut down. A lot of people, as soon as you give them the yes, but approach, they're done. You know, they're like, OK, he's not listening to me. I'm just going to go talk to somebody else. Yeah, it, it tends to make things a lot more productive, I think. And you can see it in body language and you can see it in people's eyes when, when, when you yes, but them, 
uh, shoulder slump and you just, you know, it's just this negative negativity. But, you know, when you start, like I said, it's not actually using the two word. Sometimes they'll even give that Scooby-Doo going, <laughs> well, when you work in a Japanese company, you get a lot of those. Think about the culture of the organization in itself of a Japanese company and um, your role as being as creative as you are. I mean, that's a lot of selling that you have to do on ideas. Yeah, it is. Um, the, the two cultures are very different, for sure. So there, there's a different learning curve that's associated there. But, but just the same, you know, even with the Japanese culture, if you sit in meetings with them, the more senior members tend to sit back and listen. And they don't chime in until the very end. They let everybody else talk. They want to absorb all the information and then they make a decision. Um, and that's from years of wisdom, having gone through meetings and having gone through problems and understanding, knowing that a lot of the solution can come out of multiple people talking. So if you observe the senior members, that's actually what they do. You know, and it's kind of a joke because, you know, we go through cross-cultural training to learn about the opposite culture when we have to work together. Right. And one of the things you'll notice, and this isn't so true what, from what I've seen with the younger generation of the Japanese, but with the older generation, if you're sitting in a meeting, they look like they're taking a nap. They look like they're asleep. They, they sit back in the chair, they have their arms crossed, and they have their eyes closed and their head down. But they're actually not sleeping. They're actually absorbing everything that's being communicated, and they're deeply thinking about the stuff that's being communicated and trying to rationalize it all and come to a decision. You know, that's a different form of yes and. Yes. They're not communicating anything, but they're absolutely listening to what everybody has to say and then they're adding to it later. And it's, you know, it's a different form. That's why I say you don't have to use those two words, but it's the whole mindset that's really what's important. Well, they're using the uh, two of the principles of improvisation. They're using that one, the listening to understand but they're completely focused in the conversation. They're not sidetracked by, I've got to be somewhere at the next meeting. They're, as they say in improv, they're completely present. They're in the moment, and they're totally focused and listening to the conversation and figuring out ways to take that information and adapt to the situation. And all of that is part of that whole yes and approach. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because, you know, going back to the how busy people are these days, you know, you go into meetings and you see a lot of people sitting there with laptops open and they're sitting and typing away on their laptop while they're in the meeting. And more often than not, it's those people that are the ones that use the yes, but approach because they're sitting there listening and waiting for the thing they disagree with. And then they jump on it and they chime in. They haven't heard any of the rest of the conversation. They just heard the one thing that they didn't actually agree with. And then all of a sudden they just want to pounce on it. Almost like they're in there to just judge and evaluate, not to contribute. And I think that's all, you know, I think a lot of it is related to how busy people get and they're trying to multitask and do multiple things at the same time. And it's really hard to pay attention to what's being communicated and communicating again uh, in another form. And it's funny because I just had this conversation with somebody last week about multitasking. 
You know, and my general view is I think it's really hard to multitask when it's two forms of communication. Right. But if it's multitasking, like a drummer has to use all four limbs, I'm able to play drums and have a communication with somebody at the same time. But it's two different parts of your brain. And I think that's what makes the difference is you can use the left and the right side of the brain at the same time if you train it. But if you're trying to use the same side of the brain for two different tasks, it becomes difficult. And I think when people try doing that, I think it causes the, I think it causes some of the yes, but approach for people. And I'm no doctor, no scientist, but it's just my own personal belief. <laughs> well, I think you may have actually hit, hit the nail on the head because I've never thought about it that way. I'm not a, I'm not a believer that we can multitask. Um, but I never thought about it from, from a musician standpoint. And I, and I think about, yeah, you know, I'm trying to teach myself how to play the guitar. And I, you know, it's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time. It's, it's used in both sides of your brain. Wow. But, but think about a guitar player who sings. Oh, and yeah. And then, it's, basically, it's basically playing guitar with one side of your brain and essentially having communication with the other side of your brain, right? It's singing's like talking. It's like talking to somebody. So I think you can train your brain to use both sides of the brain simultaneously. But if you try to do two tasks with one side at the same time, I don't know that it works so well. I could be wrong, but oh, I believe you're dead on. And, and prior to our conversation, starting the starting the podcast, I, I, I told that I had mentioned that I'm going to let the conversation go organically. We'll start off, you know, your background and see where it goes. And I'll say is wow. I mean, <laughs> that in itself is that's a piece of gold. I don't know if it's true, but it's just my own thought, you know. But and I believe there's a lot of truth behind that. And, and for the first time, I think I, I and I will give you credit when I use your analogy when I'm speaking to people. But I think you're right because when we're multitasking, I've got you know, oh sure, you need five minutes of my time. Come on, man, and I'm sitting here doing this on my computer or not paying attention, and the person is giving me, you know, some information that I'm, I'm completely tuned out. I'm not not listening to it. Um, you know, you try to, you know, that's why you don't text and drive. People still do. It's, wow. And, you know, I, I used to try to type emails or do other forms of communication while sitting in meetings, and I completely try to stop it now because I've come to the realization that I can't do it. I've tried. I can multitask with two sides of my brain, but I can't do it. I can't do two things on the same side of the brain and I can't listen to one conversation and have another conversation at the same time. I just can't do it. I think that's why webinars and some of that stuff don't work because we're always multitasking. We're not completely focused on, on, on the task at hand. That is John, that is worth the price of admission. That that's, that's Pure business goal there. And, and like I said, I am going to use that and, and I will definitely give you all the props on that. Um, well, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We've been having this conversation, you know, going on of almost 40 minutes. I, I just want to, I just want to thank you for one, taking the time to be part of this podcast, two, imparting your wisdom. Um, and, and I know that the stuff that you have provided the audience here that they'll be able to take some of the stuff and actually apply it 
in their everyday lives to start seeing the change. And if it's just the, the smallest thing, which is the biggest piece here, is you can only multitask when you're using both sides of the brain, not just. <laughs> I deeply, greatly thank you. I appreciate you taking time. And it's great to have you as a guest. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, uh, one of the things I love doing in my job is I love teaching people. It's a very rewarding experience for me to be able to try to teach younger minds and even older minds, actually. I, anybody that I can impart some bit of wisdom to or different way of thinking, I enjoy it. So, no, thank you for the opportunity to, to share in this experience. And, you know, I look forward to seeing what, what comes from this. And, you know, if there's anything else I can do to help, let me know. Oh, there is, uh, because I will be contacting you again, because I, I, you know, I, I know the attention span of audiences and stuff, but I would love to have you back on a future podcast and pick up another conversation and see which way we, we can move that needle. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Just let me know. Great. Thanks, John. I greatly appreciate it. And have a great evening. Oh, thanks. You too. It always amazes me how we can grow our professional network by just having a random conversation with the person next to you. Sometimes it works, other times it doesn't. Well, I'm glad that John and I struck up that conversation that evening on that flight for many reasons. I do appreciate his comments on how he's been able to apply the concepts in my book and change the way he interacts with others. How many of you can relate to the story he told of the two co-workers, a manager and a direct report, having a conversation where the manager is pushing their agenda on their direct report and any response the direct report provides is shot down because the manager was listening to respond and not listening to understand. How has that made you feel being on either side of that conversation? Well, if you like this episode, please go to iTunes and write a review on my podcast. By writing a review helps promote the podcast to a larger audience. And remember to sign up for the SN Challenge on my website at www.petermargaritas.com. Thank you again for taking time to listen to this podcast. In episode 10, I interview Kevin Tipton, excuse me, Dr. Kevin Tipton, who is a department chair in sport, health, and exercise at Sterling University in Scotland. Until next time, use yes and and eliminate yes but. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.